through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land. Today, many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington, we are coming to get our check. Are we good to go? Take two. Are we good? We're good. The batteries are charged. We're, we're ready to go. You promise? Yes? I'm promising you, yes. I'm Garrett McQueen. <laughs> I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the podcast that COVID has not yet killed. Unlike the New York Philharmonic, we'll be talking about that here in a minute. Yet. Not yet <laughs> say killed. Yet. I hope it doesn't. Mm. Um, shout out to all of the returning listeners. Thank you so much for joining us for this 71st opus of the Triloquy podcast. New listeners, hey, y'all. This is um this is something we have here. So welcome. Yeah, uh, this opus of Triloquy is brought to you in part by the Schubert Club. They really been holding me down these past few weeks, giving me lots of work, some really great opportunities. This past weekend, um, I actually interviewed uh, Midori, the violinist for the Schubert Club. That was really exciting. I'll talk um, a little bit more um, about that later on in this opus. Uh, if you want to um, check out what the Schubert Club is doing, how they're tying um, the the good work, you know, the equitable work. Mm-hmm into some of the uh, more traditional um, conversations and repertoire from classical music, just go over to their website. That is at schubert.org. I would also like to uh, give a belated happy birthday to our dear friend Delaney over at uh, Classically Black. She turned 22 years young this past weekend. Oh, if I could go back. <laughs> but one thing... If I knew then what I... Oh. What would you What would you tell your twenty two year old self? Stop it! Just stop it. <laughs> okay, so what do you have to say to twenty two year old Delaney? She's doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> she she in a better situation than you were at twenty two. <laughs> well, she certainly seems more together than I was. I mean, and and the the conversations that you know we've had with Delaney and Katie uh, here on Triloquy have been phenomenal. They had me on Classically Black. I think that was the um, episode eighty two of their podcast. If you've never just sat down and and listened to the Classically Black podcast, definitely go check them out. They have a new website that looks all great. Trying to put trying to put my, you know, web developer skills to shame. <laughs> and they recently passed 100 episodes. They yeah, had their yeah, centenary. So, yeah, so. Can, so congrats to them. You know, I, I've, I've always considered, um, you know, them them one of our sister podcasts. And, you know, they're, they're, they're doing the, the, the good work as well, probably in a, a slightly younger, more hip way. <laughs> and, you know, during this COVID time, it's tough having a birthday. You know, I had my 50th back in May and following her on Twitter, you know, she's going through some stuff with her living situation. So I'm sympathetic to the trials that she's going through. But, um, you know, Delaney, just imagine when you get to be my age, 
you'll look back at that and you'll just and you'll just laugh. You'll be you'll be queen of the world by then. You mm-hmm. and Katie will have done something. So a huge happy birthday to you. Um, I wanted to um, shout out uh, once again the Ill Harmonic Orchestra. They have a concert coming up this Saturday on the last opus of Triloquy. I kept saying this Saturday, but I was saying the twenty fourth of October. So that's coming up this Saturday okay. as we tape this on the twenty fourth of October. You can get more information about that um, on uh, Facebook. Just search. Uh, uh, Ill Harmonic Orchestra on Facebook. Um, shout out to um, Abe Hunter and the Lead Society. We had uh, our concert, uh, We Are the Change, this past weekend. I hosted it. Scott, it felt kind of, I kind of got the butterflies being on the live air uh, once again, but it was it was fun. It and was on fun. camera too, huh? And on camera and live performance. So, you know, have, having to, you know, talk all the way up into the moment. I felt like a sports announcer, but, but the sport was opera. You had to hit the post. Yep, yep. I bodied it. I I think I did a great job, but, <laughs> but yeah, shout out to uh, the uh, the Lead Society and uh, and all of the musicians um, who were uh, involved. Um, re- really great uh, meeting uh, Rayanne, um, Marsha. Great meeting Jay Warren, uh, Mitchell, and Byron, um, opera singers and uh, pianists. Byron's the pianist from all over uh, the country and the world. Um, uh, folks, uh, one of the musicians came in from London. So yeah, just another great celebration of blackness. Um, the video of that uh, is coming out eventually. They uh, did a documentary that um, I was very much involved in, so uh, keep an eye on that at the Leeds, uh, sorry, leadsociety.org, L-I-E-D society.org. Um, there's gonna there's a concert coming up with Ensemble Pi um, that uh, you're going to learn more about on uh, today's opus. We, we started with a quote uh, by the late Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, that kind of, uh, uh, kind of mirrors, kind of hints at the conversation of uh, reparations, which uh, this concert uh, is actually themed around reparations now. So, Scott, we'll, we'll talk a little bit uh, about reparations later on in this opus as well. Cool. Um, yeah, uh, lots of other stuff. So how about we go ahead and get into this first movement? For me, a shout out to Nathan Cohn at TPR Cinema. He pointed out uh, an omission on my part because we talked a lot about Eddie Van Halen, who had mm-hmm. passed away, the guitarist for the band Van Halen, and such a a huge force in rock and roll. Um, you asked, well, okay, great. He's done all this stuff for rock and roll, but has he ever... Uh, collaborated with a black artist or recorded black music. And, and actually what caught my attention most is when you mentioned um, Eddie Van Halen's collaborations with Michael Jackson. You right. mentioned Beat It, and of course I know that song, but after learning about that, I went to Bad, which Eddie Van Halen um, was a part of, I, I read. And mm-hmm. if you just go through so much of uh, Michael Jackson's discography, especially those more uh, rock-sounding songs, Eddie Van Halen uh, was involved. It, it, it's so cool, the the connections. Like I think I said, like I said last week, it's so cool, the connections that can be made if you just look and, sure. and, really, and really center that perspective you know if you center well what does this have to do with black people and blackness you know you get examples that we already know so what if what if we you know and get me off my soapbox here but but what if we extended that to everything every one of these artists what if we centered the idea of making it applicable to black people the things that we could learn that we didn't know that we already knew but anyway that that was what caught me but you mentioned a a first uh, a different uh, song didn't you? Right. The, there was a song that they did called Ice Cream Man. And Nathan Cohn pointed out 
that that was not original, that that was actually a cover. And I went, well, of course it was a cover because it was on the album Diver Down, which is nothing but covers. And Nathan comes back and goes, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's on the first album. Mm-hmm. And I went, and I'm Owen too. Okay. So, um, but yeah, um, I think I was confusing it with another cover that they did do on Diver Down, which is called Big Bad Bill by Milton Ager and Jack Yellen. But um, I, I, I think that Ice Cream Man, uh, the, ori- the original artist is John Brim. Have you heard of John Brim? I had not heard of John Brim. And of course, what was my first question? Is he, you, black? is he black? And is he? He is black. Now look, now look at this. We have another, yet another black man paving the way for some piece of art, some piece of music that so many people know as Van Halen's, but a black man wrote it history just the pattern that we're going to talk about the pattern later on too today but the patterns <laughs> they they, they did give credit in the liner notes but how many people are going to get out the magnifying glass and read that part right. of the liner notes and um you know i just, just as you're talking i, I googled uh john brim uh real quick and uh, there was an article that I'll, I'll post to the uh, website that was written um, just this year in June by, uh, I'll, I'll uh, shout her out, Jennifer P. Brown of Hop, the Hoptown Chronicle. Um, I'll, I'll just sort of skim a few um, quick facts here. Um, the late John Brim, he was born way back in April of 1922. So, Again, like I said um, last week about one of the artists we were talking about, born in 1922, imagine the obstacles that John Brim had, you know, all sorts of N-words and everything else, and, and you know, still making a way. Um, it says here that he moved to Indianapolis in 1941, and then he went on to Chicago in 1945. So in 1953, that's when John Brim recorded the song, Ice or he uh, wrote the uh, recorded and wrote the song Ice Cream Man at Chess Records, and then years later, you know, many other people uh, covered it uh, with, of course, the most the most famous uh, rendition being by the band uh, Van Halen. Mm. So, shout out to the late um, John Brim, uh, but I'll also again shout out. Um, the late Eddie Van Halen, you know, last week's conversation, you you let me down a rabbit hole that I never would have gone down any other way, and not just with Michael Jackson, but listening to some of those Van Halen tunes. You sure, know, but I, you know, also full props to Michael Jackson as well for uh, having that sort of adventurous spirit to do those collab. Uh, Eddie Van Halen wasn't the first rock guitarist he collaborated with. Right. On Dirty Diana, he played with uh, Steve Stevens, mm-hmm. who was uh, the guitarist with uh, Billy Idol for years. Right, right. So you know, every time we, every time you hear me say or anybody else say, all American music is black music. If you want to go over to the rock and roll, yes, I'm talking about that as well. And and you know, and, and the proof is look at the material as <laughs> as it's been said. How about we um, listen uh, to a little uh, uh, music as performed by the late John Brim to a transition here. Summertime is here. Need something to keep you cool. Now summertime is here. Need something to keep you cool. Streets is done, as Jay-Z once said. New York uh, Philharmonic is done along with the Met. It must be real quiet up there, huh? 
when did the, when did the New York Philharmonic be known as Streets? No, it's <laughs> that's me saying you know Streets is done. Like nothing's going on on the streets. Okay. Oh goodness gracious, God! <laughs> what I just I just added another I just added another term, didn't I? So um, since the last time we recorded this article from the New York Times by our good friend Zachary Wolf, who we've gotten together on this podcast before, uh, this <laughs> this came out on October thirteenth. Uh, simply the title is New York Philharmonic cancels the rest of its season. Uh, Scott, it's one thing. It was one thing for me to see that the Met was done. And when we talk about, you know, the Met Opera, I'm thinking about people, you know, in fur coats and pearls and, and, and all that sort of thing. So, of course, one of those institutions is not going to make it right now. With the New York Philharmonic, that's I considered that, you know, a little bit more of an agile organization, institution. They had done a lot to, you know, get through these first few months of COVID. There were the photos of the rehearsals with the plexiglass things up and all that. But um, I guess it just wasn't enough. So uh, they already, they earlier this summer, they announced that the uh, fall concerts uh, weren't going to be a thing. Now, um, no music at all. So Uh, Add that to the Nashville Symphony and so many other uh, orchestras that the Knoxville Symphony, so many of these other orchestras that are dark um, this season. It seems like the New York Philharmonic of all orchestras might have been one to have figured out with all that money they got up there. But looks like they could. A couple questions. Number one, um, what is the average ticket price? Would you have any idea for the New York Philharmonic? What could what might you pay? Let's 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 take a look. Ooh, oh my goodness. Okay. Um, and this is from Excite.com from my Google, but it says the average price for New York Philharmonic tickets start from $251. Oh my goodness. The minimum get uh, the minimum get-in price is $49 for New York Philharmonic tickets at the David Geffen Hall at Lincoln Center, New York. So I guess the 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 B-rate tickets are, you know, you can get in there for $50, but the average is $251. So imagine if you have one of those box seats or or one of the I don't know, mezzanine or or, or whatever. They're probably people that were paying $1,500 to $2,000 to get in that building. To, to, to go watch Beethoven and Brahms. Now that just now that that just <laughs> shot my other question because the other question was, would they be able to flip the ticket price for a digital pass? Like if you were going to watch on your computer at home right. or on your smartphone or something like that. But I was thinking, you know. Well, let me me read a little bit of the article here. Uh, It says the halt in performances since mid-March has exposed the Philharmonic, like other arts organizations dependent on ticket sales, to a devastating drop in revenue. So I imagine that you don't, without having people paying hundreds of dollars to get in your doors every weekend, you would be in trouble. Uh, Later on in this article, uh, it says one of the representatives from the orchestra uh, said that the orchestra would have a deficit of a approximately $10 million for the fiscal year that ended in August. Scott, I don't know if somebody is paying the average $251 to watch the New York Philharmonic perform a piece of music that I might be able to find them perform on YouTube already. I was going to say, so and that's the program the that they have probably already exists yeah. on YouTube. Do you think this is a sign for... Other institutions, I mean, if the New York Philharmonic couldn't make it, 
what hope does the Omaha Symphony have or Long Beach or Seattle or Houston? Pick your pick your city. Sure. Well, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra did a concert over the weekend streamed for free. But there was no audience, right? No. And I wonder how long they can keep that up. You would know better than I would. I'm, I've never worked in an orchestra. I mean, and, and I don't I, I don't ask that question hypothetically. Like, I, I really wonder, you know, mm-hmm. how how long uh, can they make it? I think, you know, the key thing is that not only, you know, COVID has shown us so much and has taught us so much about what is not sustainable, not only is crowding a concert hall over, you know, not only are streets done in that way, but... <laughs> Events that require ticket sales right. in that way. And right. I've seen some of the non-classical, art, you know, some of the pop artists, some of the hip-hop artists have done their um, digital things, which I think is cool. You know, I'm, I'm always here to give 10, 20, 30 for the right concert, digital, you know, $50 to support and watch this live thing. But I can't give that to watch a Brahms symphony or watch a Beethoven symphony. I'm just sorry. Right. I, I can't do it. But I don't, I don't have a, a, a big fancy job and salary like you do. So maybe the answer, maybe it's different for you, right? Well, speaking of <laughs> classically black podcasts, if you want to go back to the opus where we spoke at Sphinx, mm-hmm. both of them right there said, why on earth would I get all dudded up and go to a concert hall when anything that you want is right there when you're sitting in your slippers in your own home. Right, right. right. So that seems to be the key is what's on the program. What am I, what am I paying for? Now, one other point, though, that I think is important to make is let's say they take their tickets all the way down to $10 or whatever. They can sell more tickets than they could crowd in the Lincoln Center, you mm-hmm. know, right? Mm-hmm. They could have millions of people uh, given $10. So there's that advantage, but still the programming has to matter. It can't just be the same thing. I mean, or maybe they will. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But personally, I can't pay $251 to go watch the New York Philharmonic play Copeland Three or, oh or whatever gosh. they want to do. Can you imagine what dinner beforehand was? Yeah, especially if you want to eat like nearby or maybe I'm sure you there's see a the dollar in signs the in my eyes just to ka-ching, ka-ching. <laughs> oh, you're getting an idea for your next business venture, huh? No, <laughs> they I'm, got the money like that, I guess. I'm sitting here thinking, how do people do that? I guess I'm. I don't have it. that kind of money to be doing that. I I barely would do the stand. What was it? The standing room only for fifty bucks or something, something like that? Like that, you that could, yeah. Shh. Then I'm getting a chili dog from the hot dog cart. <laughs> I'll have to just stick with the free performances by the New York Philharmonic that uh, you can find on YouTube, including this one. And by the way, shout out to... Anthony McGill, our good brother over there at the New York Philharmonic. I hope uh, I, I, things will be fine for him, I, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure, you know, and as I'm sure it will be for most of the musicians. If I can just, you know, quickly go back to it. It said in this article, uh, let me skim quickly. It looks like uh, the Philharmonic's contract with its musicians expired last month. As negotiations on a new contract continue, the players are earning what they have since May, about $2,200 per week or 75% of the orchestra's base pay, but mm. with a new wrinkle. Those who earned more than base pay now also receive 35% of their overscale or amount above the base. So basically, 
the worst the worst person off is getting twenty two hundred dollars a week. Do you make twenty two hundred dollars a week? No. Okay, let's move on. I also don't live in New York. <laughs> right, that's true as well. That 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 consideration For is the, important to make. A fifteen dollar chili dog. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that that's what a chili dog. It's is. probably twenty five over in Times Square. Anyway, are you playing? Am I playing what? Is that really? Would you really pay that much for a hot dog from a I, vendor? No, I would not. All right, I, but I don't eat public chili. Oh God! Chili has to be made at home for me to have it. Private chili? Yes, I'm not eating anybody's public chili, but that's just me. Spaghetti as well, but we'll talk about that on another opus. (laughs) Maybe on the Halloween opus, we'll talk about that. Mm. Anyway, go on with your accidental. (laughs) All right, uh, I don't think I put anything next to the correction, so I got to put a natural next to that correction about ice cream man and a natural next to New York Philharmonic because naturally this would happen. And I guess that I'm going to stay natural here for Black Information Network. Have you been listening? Mm-mm. So, what is uh, it? Uh, as it turned, well, I had to do some research because the last I don't know, uh, not quite a week, I've been listening to Black Information Network, which just suddenly showed up on the radio dial, right? Just like a complete overnight format switch. Well, that's usually usually what happens when you have a big format change is it happens all at once and nobody has any say in you know listeners listeners calling in to complain too bad so sad Mm -hmm. we're doing this and we know that you don't like it and we're doing it anyway was there was there a station that you used to listen to that you went to that and then stumbled upon black information network if i'm not mistaken it's go radio okay uh, 93.3 but you've been listening to Black Information Network lately? I have. And uh, that is how I found out that Cardi B and Offset have reconciled. Well, you know, money buys a lot of things. <laughs> well, I, I didn't even know that she had been married. Right. And I didn't know who Offset was. Oh, you didn't know she was married at all? You didn't no. Know, you don't know the Migos? Nope. Oh, we got oh, to get you onto the Migos. Okay. We're not the same, my nigga, my nigga. We found enough to fish. You know that song. That's not a Migo song, but it's Offset. You know, we taught you Ric Flair drip. Of course, we've had we, we we've done that song on this podcast. That's Offset. Offset is in there, but that's not Migos. But anyway, you know Offset. You just didn't know. I just didn't know him. that I knew Offset. But now you okay. knew, and he's married to Cardi B. The more you know. <laughs> <laughs> so Black Information Network is something that is, uh, I believe, the studio headquarters are in Detroit. And it is part of the iHeartRadio family. And what happened was, is this past summer, they made a hard format switch. Um, and imagine the surprise that certain people who were tuning in to listen to Fox News Radio mm-hmm. all of a sudden are hearing speeches by Malcolm X. Oh, you know they were pissed. And Michelle Obama. Oh, yeah. And Oprah. <laughs> and, you know, all, all these sorts of people who are, are now... Uh, and. Roland, yeah, Roland Martin. R- Roland Martin is one of their one of their flagship presenters. I have I have their website pulled the iHeart website pulled up, and there are Black Information Network podcasts mm. of which Roland Martin's podcast is one of them. I might need to write them an email anyway. Go on. So um, the what I wanted to bring to, what I wanted to ask you about was this idea of black owned versus black representation. Mm-hmm. So iHeartMedia is a white owned company. Sure. BET is a 
Somebody white at the top. Am I right? I believe so. Okay. I could be wrong. Okay, so let's look it up. Do you? My my question though is, do you still give it that legitimacy? Do you look at it different than you would if uh, if, if the CEO was a black person? Or a person of color. Well, just so the people know, Robert L. Johnson co-founded BET, but BET was acquired by Viacom. So, okay. that, so that's what's happening. Okay. That, that, that's how that is. But anyway, your question is, do I put more, um, do, do, do I put more into a black-owned versus a, you know. A white-owned. Yeah. Um, uh, well, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> right. So what I'm saying is, so since this is owned by iHeartRadio. Yeah. Do you look at it the same? Because, you know, we talked about how Killer Mike and his bank initiative, you know, you're going to you're you're in a wait and see posture okay. with that. Yeah. So do you would you look at Black Information Network as legit? I will listen. I mean, again, going back to this website and just looking at the podcast, they have Roland Martin unfiltered here. They list the Breakfast Club as one of the Black Information Network podcasts. So, you know, the, both of those are bits of media that, you know, I'm familiar with and consume. So mm-hmm. um, I, I would just have to uh, walk in uh understanding, you know, what's at play, you know, this is an iHeart thing, you know, so maybe there's money involved and just to always understand that, you know, this, these, these folks are speaking from their perspectives. This is sort of an open uh, network thing. Now, if you're talking about, uh, you know, am I just going to blindly listen and agree with everything I hear on a network just because it's black owned? Absolutely not, because I imagine some of the stuff on this Black Information Network might be a little right-leaning or or might be a little conservative-leaning. Well, that's one of the things that I wanted to point out, because one of the stories that they were running today was about uh, Vernon Jones. Okay. Do you know uh, Vernon Jones? Mm -hmm. He uh, he spoke. um, I'll read you just a little bit of the story here as it comes from TheGuardian.com. Black Democratic state representative from Georgia crossed party lines to deliver a passionate endorsement of Donald Trump at the RNC. Okay, so this is something they're referring to from uh, the RNC. That this uh, he he was up there saying that Donald Trump has done more for black people than that's what this black man was saying. Right. Well, Donald Trump says it too. Sure. You know because and one of the things that he wanted to point out was the money that had been given to HBCUs and promised for like the next ten years or Mm -hmm. some such like this. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're putting stories like that out. Does that bolster their uh, impartiality, or do you look at that and go, "You're you're not helping"? Well, if it is a fact that Donald Trump has given X amount of money to HBCUs, that's something that should be and can be reported, right? Mm-hmm. Y'all know how I give it up. I'm obviously not a Trumper, but if that is a, a fact, you know, there, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about anything being wrong with giving money to HBCUs. No, I'm saying airing, sh- airing the story. The informa- yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. I don't think there's anything wrong with airing the story if that's a fact. No, that's what I'm saying is that it appears to be the, like they're, they're, they're trying to, to be to, impartial mm-hmm. in that way. I, I, for me— How do you think that'll be read on the landscape, though? Well, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about right now, not having tuned in to the Black Information Network on the radio or anything, the Democratic Party—and this is not the politics podcast, but the Democratic Party has counted on the black vote for so long that 
you know, they haven't worked as hard as they needed to. So you have folks like Trump saying, oh, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that and X, Y, and Z. If these are things that he's actually doing, these are things that I think uh, black folks should know. Now, obviously, I'm, you know, I, I, I think it's a shame that I have to repeat ever so often that I'm, you know, not a, a Trump supporter or, or anything like that. We'll get into that as it applies to Ice Cube here in a second. But Well, uh, that, that, <laughs> that, that was the question um, that sort of came up in doing that, they run the risk of, like, as you've said, being a Candace Owens or a, a, a Stacey Dash or something like that, that they're not, that they're not helping the cause. I'll, I'll, I would ha- really have to read or listen to the story specifically, but I don't think you're branching off into Candace Owens, Terry Crews territory by stating facts. If, if I'm listening to this black information network and hearing something that, and there's subtitle here is because truth matters. So hearing the truth that Donald Trump gave X money, X amount of money to HBCUs. Well, that, that just is a fact. I don't think that's an endorsement of him or anything. Sorry. Did you know that before? I didn't know. Yeah, me neither. I hadn't heard that. So I guess, um, good for the students who are benefiting uh, from that money. Um, I don't have anything to say about the man who gave it. So, <laughs> but you good. do about <laughs> you do about Ice Cube though, who has had some accusations okay, so leveled against okay, him. So let's let's go ahead and go there. And and I was late to this one. So I'm reading here um, from an article from Vibe. The title: Ice Cube responds to being called a sellout, denies endorsing Donald Trump. So. The gist of this, and you, I think you texted me actually and put me onto this. The gist of this is that Ice Cube has been working with uh, Donald Trump for some sort of platinum plan. You know, we're talking about reparations later on in this opus. Well, this is supposed to be something called the platinum plan that's going to fund black business, black uh, schools, and and that sort of thing. And they're calling Ice Cube a sellout. Um, to that, Ice Cube responded. I'm reading a tweet of his from October 16th. He says, "When I got bus, when I got bus to school, homies called me a sellout. When I started rapping in 1983, bangers called me a sellout. That means the um, the gang bangers. Yes, I was I'm, I was <laughs> alive then. When I left NWA, they called me a sellout. When I started doing movies, rappers called me a sellout. When I started my own league, the arena said it was a sellout. So, you know, he's trying to write a few bars there, you know, with, with the, the phrase sellout. But mm-hmm. anyway, he basically his, his idea is like, well, y'all can call me a sellout, but, you know, I've been, you know, uh, out here successful and, and doing my thing. And from his perspective, he thinks, I suppose, that working with Trump is going to be, you know, a way to make good for black people. I also heard him say, I think, or maybe I read on Twitter that the folks over like Don Lemon didn't want to talk to him, you know, but they were more receptive to him over at Fox. And I, and you told me that it was actually uh, Cuomo over at CNN who talked to him. So I, in, I guess it didn't end up being Don That's right. at all, but somebody else. That's right. What was the gist of what he was saying to, uh, to Chris Cuomo? Cause you know, I don't watch him. <laughs> I'm, yes, I know. I've just recently found out how, mu- how much like the Chris Cuomo how much you don't watch I, him. I don't like that show. But anyway, what was he saying to Chris Cuomo? Ice Cube. Uh, um, basically, Ice Cube was saying a, a lot in that tweet, but not in verse as <laughs> as such <laughs> in, prose. in prose. No, he um, he was basically saying, "Look, I'm going to go to who is in power to get things for black people." Now, let me preface what I'm about to say again. Garrett McQueen 
is not a Trump support. I don't support any of the politics, period, mm-hmm. you know, but mm-hmm. certainly not that. So let me let me remind people of that. Now, I didn't like the Ice Cube critique, and I said this on Facebook and Twitter. I didn't like the Ice Cube critique because you're wagging your finger at Ice Cube going to folks in positions of power, and yet y'all sign on to going and collaborating and trying to, quote, work from the inside. I've been guilty of it as well with these big white-led classical music institutions who have showed us that they are anti-black, refuse to center blackness for more than the past presidential term, three and a half years, for generations. They have showed us that, but we applaud folks who go into, you know, the the Juilliards and the Cleveland um, orchestras and the mm-hmm. and the CCMs and, and, and insert your white-led classical institution here is good to try to collaborate and make change with those people, but y'all shitting on Ice Cube because he's working with somebody that that you don't see any any benefit from him working with. I argue that there are a lot of black folks who will say that about these classical institutions, saying that uh, you going and, and working with this place, trying to make them better, makes you a sellout to black people. Can I, I can certainly see that. Do you mm. understand the argument I'm making? Of course I do. So, yeah. What does Ice-T think about all of this? <laughs> Ice-T is probably somewhere minding his business. <laughs> <laughs> Did Ice T was in a rock band uh, one time? Body Count. Yeah. Did, was but, that one that a, a band that you were familiar with or listened to or anything? Sure. Body yeah. Count. The radio station that I worked at uh, that played alternative music, Body Count, was uh, on the playlist on the regular. Um, Cop Killer was the single off of that one. What a beautiful composition. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) Composition. Okay, we're here at the second movement uh, to strike a chord, talk about some of the music that moved us this week. Um, Since we're kind of talking about politics, I'll I'll get us started in the second movement. So uh, you remember when Trump got on TV and talked about shithole countries, right? I do. So... I remember the story. Right, yep. right. So the following, so this was back when I was living in Knoxville on the radio down there. So Garrett being Garrett, the next day, of course, I have I have to respond to that. So I dedicated my show to music from those countries that he called shithole countries. So I, I've done, and this this was a show that I had to spend more time on than usual because it was so, you know, fringe, for lack of a better word. So I was digging, trying to find these Haitian composers and, and Jamaican uh, composers and composers from uh, these inland African countries. And um, I, I found a few, and uh, one of the composers uh, whose music I got onto, you know, thanks to, you know, that bit of curiosity, uh, was named Julio Racine. Uh, I believe he actually spent the uh, latter years of his life in Kentucky, but um, he was uh, Haitian and mm. uh, and wrote something uh, called the uh, Voodoo Jazz Sonata. Well, um, uh, Mr. Racine passed away ab- about a week ago, so rest in peace to um, Mr. Racine. And shout out to uh, Christine Gangelhoff, who's done a lot of work in recording uh, so many of his works. You know, uh, you know, works by Racine and and, and many others. Uh, for folks who don't know, a past Triloquy guest. Uh, 
Christine Gangelhoff. So uh, it just as a as a way of you know honoring him and and just putting folks onto his music as uh, uh, that they you know folks who may not know his music putting them onto it. I thought that I would uh, share a little bit of of Christine's performance of a bit of his music here. So again, rest in peace, rest in power to Julio Racine and uh, a huge thanks to Christine Gangelhoff for the work that she does in promoting not only, you know, that composer, but all sorts of composers from uh, the Caribbean and, and other island nations. You you got to meet uh, Christine a few weeks ago. We had a physically some distanced grilled vegetables. Uh, barbecue. Yeah, Christine is vegan. So I was like, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? So I, <laughs> I went to the uh, to the one section of the grocery store that I needed and, <laughs> and just picked everything that I thought would be good for the grill. Um, you know, the bell peppers and the mushrooms and the zucchini, squashes and all that stuff. We, you know, put some seasoning on it because this is a black household here and uh, grilled some veggies and I thought they turned out pretty good. Well, what did you think? I think that you had enough to feed eight people. And we did pretty good, <laughs> didn't we? <laughs> it seemed like there was a lot of food that night. It, it was. No no more grilling, uh, you know, with the flurries today here in St. Paul. Yeah, and, and not for the first time this season. Yeah, this was the second little flurry day, wasn't it? And three to six inches expected tomorrow. Mm-mm. October twentieth. Streets because is done. 2020. Streets is done. 2020 is done. 2020 is streets. <laughs> what, 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 what music you got? What music you got? I, I want to acknowledge my privilege of being able to follow whims and go down rabbit holes whenever I take radar on a walk. Mm-hmm. Because the piece that I want to talk about by Amy Beach is one that I, I was led to through other things that I was listening to on my streaming platform of choice. So for folks who don't know, who is Amy Beach? Amy Beach is an American woman uh, who's a composer in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I knew her from her Irish symphony. Right. Um, First American woman to write a symphony. Right. And it was actually a Gaelic symphony. Right, the Gaelic symphony. And... I was led into a piece by hers called Hermit Thrush. It was so cool that I was listening to it thinking, this sounds like something Chloe Flowers would play, mm-hmm. or, or maybe it's her playing, or, or something like that. It seemed fresh and modern, and then I looked down and no, it's Amy Beach's Hermit Thrush. And it was Cecile Lacotte playing the piano for that. But do, do you want me to talk about how I got there? Sure. The, it was through listening to some of the chamber works of Adolphus Hailstork okay. that got me there. Um, Adolphus Hailstork, black composer, based in Virginia these days, I believe. Yeah. And he had a world premiere on the program with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra this past weekend called Blues for St. Paul hmm. or St. Paul Blues or something to that effect. Um 
And as you know, in a past opus, we talked about the flute is the number one offender when it comes to COVID spread, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Okay, so one flutist and nobody else. Uh, oh, solo flute, solo piece. flute piece, right? But that got me, you know, and heard Katie and Delaney from the Classically Black podcast talking about uh, Adolphus Hailstork a lot. That um, Katie was a big fan, evidently. So I just started listening to some of his chamber work. Uh, the 2000 release as Falling Leaves has some really nice um, uh, chamber music on it. And uh, Adagio for Strings was the favorite one that, uh, by him that I came across. I was lucky enough to meet Adolphus Hale Stork a few years ago following a performance uh, by the uh, Gateways uh, Festival Orchestra up in Rochester. Um, in addition to the things that you've named, um, uh, has a really incredible uh, bassoon uh, uh, composition out there. On the orchestral side, a lot of people, uh, a lot of orchestras play the American Port of Call. That's the that's the one that uh, I, I played on, on that performance. Uh, but there's also um, his uh, his spirituals for orchestra. Right. That's a that was from the 2017 release that uh, mm -hmm. I got into a little bit, and um, it has that feeling of familiarity. Like I'm, I, I feel like I know it mm -hmm. for some reason. Like mm -hmm. I, like I've heard it before, but yet at the same time, there's always something new around the, you know, the next movement, around the next corner. Yeah, yeah. Also, his uh, fanfare on Amazing Grace is one that um, I'm, I used to air on the radio a, a lot. I think that one's getting um, a, a good amount of play as well. Uh, Mr. Hale Stork's um, manager is, um, I, I'm, in, I'm in contact with him uh, a lot. So maybe um, I'll, we'll be able to get uh, Adolphus Hale Stork on, on Triloquy one of these days, get him to talk a little bit more about music and all that sort of stuff. Nice. Let's say, I would love to find out how he makes his music sound familiar and like I've heard it before and it's just like right on the tip of my tongue for some reason. Yeah. And yeah. yet at the same time surprising and, and new. It's funny that how how synergetic all of this can be. I didn't think about this until just this moment. You know, Adolphus Hill Stork, in addition to writing all this music rooted in the blackness and the spirituals, he wrote one tune um, I believe it's called Seven Songs of the Rubiet. I hope I'm, I'm saying pronouncing that right and remembering that title correctly. Um, music uh, at the intersection of his black perspective and Jewish tradition, which is mm. actually a part sort of what we get into in uh, the third movement today with the with the two guests and, you know, talking about reparations, reparations for black people, reparations that Jewish people, Jewish communities already received, you know, following World War II uh, and the Holocaust. So, yeah, uh, uh, definitely uh, check that Adolphus Hillstork tune out as well. Yeah, so shout out to um, Adolphus Hillstork. One of the, you know, he is one of the sort of warhorse living black composers out mm. there right now. You know, there are a lot of young folks 
uh, out on the scene. But Adolphus Hellstork is is one of the you know OGs, as I would say, you know, in, in black classical music. So a huge shout out uh, to him. Uh, before we got into my uh, conversation um, with uh, Edith Cordman and Allison Loggins Hull from Ensemble Pie, I wanted to um, go back again really quickly. Uh, I mentioned earlier the Schubert Club and um, and interviewing Midori over the weekend. Um, doing that interview reminded me of one of my, you know, Beethoven faves, his violin concerto. And it's one of my favorites because the second year of uh, my grad school studies at the University of Southern California, um, the first concert uh, was the Beethoven Violin Concerto with Midori as soloist. I had mm. the opportunity of playing principal bassoon. And, you know, any bassoonists out there or orchestral musicians know the Beethoven Violin Concerto the violin soloist is definitely, you know, lead lead actress, lead actor. Best supporting actor is Principal Bassoon. I mean, there are all sorts of solos in there, little duets between, um, you know, bassoon, Principal Bassoon and, and solo violin. You know, those are recordings that I, I will forever treasure, you know, get, getting to have perform with Midori and, and me sounding halfway decent, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it just reminded me of you know, the magic that is music as far as bringing people together. You know, I, I know I rag on, you know, keeping the concert halls closed, who cares about what they're doing, X, Y, and Z, but, you know, what other way would I, you know, a, a, a black boy from Memphis, be having some sort of artistic conversation with someone as world-renowned as Midori? So to actually get to converse with her in words, you know, and ask questions sort of felt like a full circle moment for me, you know, this opportunity to play with her, you know, um, and this opportunity to speak with her, all thanks to music. So Mozart has, a there's a, a bassoon concerto in his catalog that's mm -hmm. like yeah. a staple, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Have you, have you done any research to find out why there isn't one in Beethoven's catalog? Beethoven didn't write um, a lot of of things, you know, for for a lot of instruments. Um, a lot of it is maybe just lost to history. You know, they say that uh, Mozart actually wrote up to five bassoon concertos, but mm. it's only the one in B flat that we have left, and we don't even have the autograph score to that. So those are just what we've extrapolated oh, okay. uh, uh, over the years. But um, you know, last week we were also, you know, we were talking about Beethoven last week too, when we were talking about the fifth, uh, the, the fifth symphony and Sonata Allegro form. Uh, this the Beethoven uh, violin concerto is an example of one of those written out expositions. You know, the piece of music as a whole is something like forty two minutes, so you don't play it on the radio all that much because it's so long. But wow. but it's mainly because, again, what I was saying about those sonata allegro form expositions, and it's not exactly that that's the case in the first movement of the concerto, but it's a similar thing except it's written out, so you don't have a repeat to not take or or to ignore. It's it's the whole thing, but you know, um, I, and I think I've said this before as well, we're always talking about the new music and changing up and diversifying playlists. If there's anybody 
that has to stay. Cesar Chavetta told me this, um, and I'll agree. If there's anybody that has to stay, I would say it is Beethoven, because if you just, again, listen to the writing in this piece of music, it's a violin feature, but there are so many opportunities for the non-soloist to be engaged as well. It really takes a genius to, you know, take a piece of music that, you know, 50 to 70 people should play. And most people on stage are, are fully engaged and, and get to be showcased in some way. Huge shout out to uh, Midori, uh, the violinist. If you don't know who she is, definitely look her up. An in, in incredible uh, world talent. Um, and shout out to the Beethoven Violin Concerto. You know, I, I don't come in here shouting out the canon too often, but today I today I will. Today I will. Somebody call Guinness. <laughs> so uh, today's guest, you know, speaking of leaving the canon, um, I spoke with Allison Loggins-Hull, who is um, a composer, a flute player, a member of the group uh, Flutronics, uh, who uh, you'll learn a little bit uh, about uh, later, on this, um, later on in this conversation. Uh, she wrote a piece of music called The Pattern for this concert by an ensemble known as Ensemble Pi. That's P-I, not P-I-E, right, but just right. P-I. Um, the concert is called Reparations Now, and the theme of the concert, the goal of the concert, is to raise awareness on the need for reparations. So I talked to Allison about the piece of music that she wrote for this concert, um, along with Edith Cordman, who is a pianist involved with Ensemble Pi. She is of Jewish heritage, uh, born in Israel, I believe, and she offers her perspective on actually being the uh, recipient of Re- of of reformations of reparations um, following the the Holocaust. Um, before we get into it quickly, I, I just wonder what your relationship is with the conversation of black reparations. Is this something that you were exposed to early on, or is this more of a contemporary thing for you? No, it's something that I remember being in the conversation as far back as. I don't know, in the 90s. Wow, I must check still ain't come in the mail. Well, and and <laughs> more recently it. It got into pop culture through Watchmen, that series. Oh right, oh, you know because right. yeah, it, and it wasn't it wasn't rep- reparations, but Redfordations because uh, Robert Redford was president for something like thirty years. Mm. You know, um, and they would make fun of people. Yeah, the only reason why you're here is because of Redford Redfordations. Hmm. Hmm. Well, reparations. Definitely need to be a thing, and we get into that uh, in this conversation. Allison uh, gets us off, I, I, kicks this conversation off. I, I sort of asked her what her definition of uh, reparations was, what it would mean to her. Um, so Allison kicks us off. But to transition, I wanted to share um, a performance by Edith. There are so many incredible uh, videos um, on the Ensemble Pie website that uh, feature her, and I wanted to make sure I gave uh, you an opportunity to hear a bit of her musicianship. Uh, so this is... Uh, Uh, Edith at the piano transitioning us into my conversation with both Edith and Allison from Ensemble Pie.
that has a lot to do with what we what the definition of reparations actually is. Um, I think it becomes more of a, a controversial topic when it's thought of as as money or monetary kind of owing of things. Um, and in writing this piece uh, for Ensemble Pie, I thought a lot about my own uh, you know, feelings and opinion about reparations. And after a lot of talking with, you know, family and friends and thinking and, and reading about it and, um, and just reflecting, I think for me, reparations is more about just eliminating this pattern of oppression and actually really creating an equal level playing field. So we as black people in this country can actually really just live our lives at peace, you know, um, try to, you know, reach for the stars without any kind of opposition or, or you know, any, any um, you know, uh, any, anything kind of keeping us back from being our best. And I feel like, you know, the pattern has been, you know, we as a people experience, um, have experienced uh, some really, really traumatic things. And then, you know, that thing might end, like something like slavery, for example. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that comes to an end. And then, you know, during Reconstruction, there's this idea that, okay, we have an opportunity to like rebuild, to to build actually, not even rebuild, but to build right, right. and to invest in our own communities, invest in our own schools, um, you know, and participate in uh, politics. But then something happens to come and kind of shut that down, right? And then, you know, here we go again and we have to reset. So there's this kind of sequence of like kind of, you know, finally starting to move forward and then a step back. You know, when Barack Obama w w was president, a lot of people were thinking like, oh, oh, we're in like a post-racial America, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I think a lot of us, like brown people, were a little skeptical because we know this pattern. Right. You know, we, we you know, this is... Um, something we have seen our our parents go through our grandparents go through um you know has been documented for hundreds of years of this idea where it's like things are starting to look up but like don't get too excited <laughs> you know what right. i mean because things might turn quickly next thing you know donald trump is president you know so for me my my kind of idea of, of reparations is the elimination of that pattern yeah. you know so we are like finally in a place where it's just like cool you know, we can just live our lives, you know, and not have to be worried about, you know, all these, all these things, um, feel comfortable in any space, you know, um, take up space, all of that. So, yeah. um, so for me, I don't think that's controversial at all. Yeah. And, you know, and, and my hope is that, um, you know, people who call themselves allies and, and, and who are, you know, part of, of the movement can also see that, you know, and help to, to make that, a possibility yeah, for everyone, absolutely. you know? Yeah. So. You know, Edith, um, I, I will admit that the idea of um, reparations is, you know, I won't say new, but maybe relatively new thanks to my, you know, inequitable schooling. It's a topic that, you know, never really came up and I had to uh, come about it on my own. I wonder what your relationship is with the concept of reparations. Have you, have you thought about the idea of reparations for long or is it also a relatively new conversation for you? No, no, it's not at all. Uh, first of all, personally, I'm connected to reparations because my family personally got reparations throughout mm. my whole life. So I'm very familiar with the meaning and the impact of reparations. 
And um, I definitely, I cannot talk, I can talk about reparation. I will never dare talking about what it means for the black community. But I can say that uh, um, it was probably the first step of the most restorative uh, move for the for the for the Jewish community at the time, uh, but it's only the first step. And uh, the reason I think that first of all, what we, from my perception, uh, uh, having reparation is first of all admitting and taking the responsibility and th and carrying the guilt. Mm -hmm. And as a person that was born in Israel and as a Jewish person, I travel to Germany and often German people come to me and they personally ask forgiveness for the Holocaust. And I remember that at first I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. like it's, you know. Right, there is no forgiveness. Of... Not only that, I mean, what are you asking me? And But later on, I, I realized that I really appreciate that. And what it really means is that they really carry the guilt and the responsibility over the genocide, which is a very important thing, which I do not see happening here at all. Mm -hmm. So for me, admitting about it would be the first step. Obviously, the, the economic gap would be one of the many things, but that atrocities are on so many levels, knowing it also from the Jewish experience, the psychological, the cultural, the spirit, the mind, the body, the history, the elimination of your history. I mean, it's so the restoration is uh, was going to take place on so many levels. Right. But the last thing that I want to say is that uh, what the Germans did also, uh, and that's in addition to the to the um, money reparation that they gave both personally and to the state of Israel, they have they founded foundation for remembrance, responsibility, and future. So it's an educational institution dedicated to promoting the continuing political and moral responsibility of the state. And I think that that definitely we will need something like this in addition, obviously, to the rest of the things. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And, and, you know, Allison, there are so many people who don't even know the fact or, or the history of Jewish reparations. And I just find it so interesting considering, you know, how so many black traditions include, you know, the story of the Exodus and the, and, and the idea of, you know, the subject of so many spirituals and, and gospel music, you know, being rooted in those Jewish stories. Um, despite that, it's always been sort of, you know, I, I'll say controversial for the lack of a, a better word. When you bring up Jewish reparations, when you talk about black reparations, it's the idea of, you know, um, uh, tragedy Olympics or, or comparing uh, two things. Is is that your e experience with this conversation? Were, were you always familiar with Jewish reparations? And have you uh, struggled or, or had certain um, difficult situations when you try to bring that up as an example of reparations being possible for black people? Mm -hmm. um, well, truthfully, I, I don't. I wouldn't say I'm an expert at all on um, you know the Jew Jewish reparations, but I think um, I think the biggest thing, one of the the most important um, aspects about that is the fact that um, you know you have a group of people that are taking responsibility for what happened, um, and 
reconciling their own how how they benefited from from what happened and the fact that that doesn't happen here like like Edith said is um, is really interesting just culturally to me um, that you know we live in a place where you know it's all about you know a individualism and personal responsibility and all that but yet when it comes to this um, I think uh, uh, I think as a whole uh, most people, you know, feel like they have nothing to do with it. It's like I wasn't alive then, you know. Um, you know, it's it's it was four hundred years ago, or you know, what have you. Um, really, wasn't that long ago. But uh, that is something that I think is kind of fascinating to me and interesting to me, and I think hard to to talk about uh, with people here in America. That that whole idea of you know the whole white privilege thing, right. um, and just the the generational kind of benefits. Um, that, you know, the majority of Americans have, have experienced because of, you know, the oppression of black people and the, and the free labor, you know, of black people for hundreds of hundreds of years. Um, and I think it's just, you know, I, I guess there's a, I, I really can't, I, I don't understand it personally. I don't, I don't understand the, the resistance to acknowledge, um, that fact. And I, I get very frustrated when, you know, uh, the the argument is you know well you know what is it that they say about your boots or you know getting your bootstraps pulling, or pulling yourself up but, by your boots yes bootstraps. yes yeah. yes that whole thing i never know? figured out what bootstraps were by the way i mean what, <laughs> what is that um but that whole concept of like just kind of getting over it and like forging ahead and quite honestly i think we as as black and brown people in this country are very good at forging forging ahead you know are very good at um kind of you know, be, having that strength of, of rising above, you know, all of these things. So it really kind of boggles my mind when, when that argument is presented and it's like, well, it's not even really about that. It's actually your problem and you need to kind of like acknowledge what has happened and reflect your, your own life and how um, you and your people have, have benefited from it and, and reconcile that, you know? Um, so I, you know, I think for me anyway, that's kind of the, uh, what I find to be very interesting in, in, in terms of the difference between like Germans and, and Americans. Um, and I have found that, you know, in talking, I, fortunately, I, 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 I'm around a, I'm in a circle of people who are, who are very progressive and very, sure. you know, like-minded. Um, so only a few times in my life have I encountered people who are really not hearing this at all. And, and, Feel like you know they have nothing to do with it and that is incredibly frustrating because you just feel you feel um you know you feel like you're made to be a crazy person it's like it's right, like the right. gaslighting, gaslighting. Yeah. yeah yeah and it's really and it's a very very frustrating thing because you just can't i'm thinking of one person in particular who was who was kind of in the peripheral of my of my life we had like mutual friends um very 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 conservative guy very pro-trump guy and it's just like there there was just no way that he could see a connection between any of these things so you know it's it's a very frustrating thing it can feel like talking to a, a brick wall at times you know yeah yeah absolutely edith i'll ask you a similar question uh with a little uh personal context so you know i i grew up you know hearing the phrase uh uh the holocaust was the world's greatest tragedy 
caught on tape, you know, with the with the sort of inference that, you know, transatlantic slave trade, you know, generationally was even more horrible. So, you know, in, in uh, again, in a similar way that I asked Allison, I wonder, you know, from your experience, speaking for yourself, do you think it's even appropriate to draw those uh, comparisons in the first place? They were, you know, two great world tragedies, and it can kind of be, you know, uh, a, a little um, cloudy and misty, I'll say, to try to, you know, compare those two things, considering how big of world tragedies they both were, just for two different communities of people? Um, I kind of shy to compare the two mm -hmm. communities, uh, though they both were re repressed heavily and, and, and obviously went through uh, atrocities. Uh, I think that the histories are very different. And, uh, and also the fact that uh, I would say that maybe from the 1950 already, the Jews became white in here in the US. Sure. So that uh, uh, helped them to, to achieve the, some of the restorative uh, possibilities. Um, plus they, um, they went through it and they did go through their reparations. So, and there's another very big difference that uh, the atrocity is happening. The, the Jews that were in Europe left Europe. So dealing with the outcome and the post-traumatic and, and the psychological and social uh, trauma all happened somewhere else. Mm. That's not happening in here. We are in the, we are in the same place together now. So, um, it's a bit of a problematic, I think, to, yeah. to compare it. Uh, I would look uh, at the model of reparation, yes, to, to, to maybe to try and restore uh, the situation of the of 400 years. Uh, it's also another horrible thing is that from my perspective it's still going on right so the oppression is not over in any way so therefore uh, it's very it's very um, difficult to compare the, the two communities I would say right know. yeah I'll agree with that and I think mm -hmm. you make a really excellent point when you say that it's still going on you know one of the unfortunate truths of 2020 is that so many people sort of you know got on board got in on the conversation following uh, the murder of, of George Floyd um, I definitely want to talk about the uh, reparations now concert um, by ensemble pie but I, I kind of wanted to focus in on that point as it um, relates to uh, ensemble pie I understand uh, Allison that this is an ensemble that that has really been exploring the intersection of social social justice and music before you know the trend of DEI mm -hmm. and, and equity work. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. Yeah, I think um, I think that's definitely worth noting that this ensemble has been doing this work for quite some time and not just kind of jumping on the bad bandwagon like it mm -hmm. seems some folks might be. Um, so it's really interesting. I you know this summer. Uh, you know, in light of, of everything that has been going on, myself and a number of my colleagues who are also uh, who are also black, you know, we would <laughs> we we had many conversations about the influx of emails, you know, right, right, that we just kind of all suddenly got mm -hmm. asking us 
you know, especially us uh, composers and creators asking us to, you know, write a piece about this subject that has to do with race or being black and da 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 da. And not only write about it, but do it quickly. Right. On, on my right? schedule. Yeah. <laughs> right. Do, do it quickly or come and talk about this or, you know, this, that and the other and, uh, you know, not get paid that much to do it. You know, that kind of thing. It was definitely like trending. And it, yeah. it's just like, well, this isn't really this doesn't seem like a equal kind of thing. Um, and it's really it's interesting. It's exhausting. I mean, some. You, you can't help but wonder like how how sincere are these efforts sometimes you know and it's it's part partially you know uh, um, a reaction to the the influx of interest but also because as I mentioned before just being kind of um, um, accustomed to these types of like patterns or things that are a little suspect you always kind of have to you know, be on guard and like wonder, you know, what is the real like motive here? You know, what is really going on? So, um, so I will say that I think that the jury is still kind of out on a lot of these efforts. You know, I really want to see, you know, what things look like, uh, even just like two years from now in terms of programming, you know, black composers or, uh, and commissioning them and, and hiring more black musicians and, you know, diversifying your, your board and right. you know, your administrative staff and, you know, all these, um, gatekeepers, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, so we'll see, but also at the same time, it's not that I, I don't appreciate the effort. Um, I think it's necessary, and I think I think some people and some organizations and presenters are are truly genuine about it, like Ensemble Pie, and then you know others. I, I wonder, you know, it, it feels a little, especially when they put the Rush Act on you, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's like they're trying right. to seize the moment. You know, mm -hmm. they're trying to to jump in on the relevancy train. Um, you know, so that that is something where you kind of feels a little, it feels a little, ugh, a little icky yeah. sometimes. So. You, you so tweeted we'll a you tweeted a few days ago, and I'm paraphrasing. I am not your resource, and I oh, felt yeah. that. I felt mm -hmm. that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I get emails. I, well, I was talking about a specific email where somebody was asking me if I could help them figure out um, some up and coming black composers because I would be a great resource for them, like literally in in the email. And it's like, you know, I you know I get stuff like that pretty frequently, you know, especially, you know, ever since, ever since June, you know, right. um, and I'm not the only one, but that, that kind of stuff has, has got to stop, you know, it's like, you really gotta, and this is part of the accountability and the responsibility of, of making your, doing your own work and making your own changes. You have to do your own research, please, right. you know, and you have to stop exhausting us <laughs> with this, with these kinds of you know, requests, you know what I mean? So yeah, that, that kind of thing can get, can definitely get a little tiresome. And then, you know, you, you always have to wonder if the motives are, are really genuine or if it's just trying to be trendy. Right, right. But uh, again, you know, as, as we were kind of speaking to um, a couple minutes ago, the the journey, the purpose of Ensemble Pie, you know, has been here, you know, for, for much longer than, than yes. just this season. Edith, right. I wonder uh, if you could uh, tell folks who don't know much about Ensemble Pie um, what it is. What, what is Ensemble Pie? So originally I used to describe it as socially conscious uh, ensemble, but now it became so in, so all the groups become became socially conscious, right. <laughs> so I'm not using that term anymore. Okay. Uh, so what it is, is the way I see it, at least now, is activism through music. 
And uh, this, we started it in 2003, right after the invasion to Iraq. Uh, that's, we were founded in 2002. So our goal and mission was there for the last 17 years. And uh, the first concerts that we started were obviously anti-war, anti-war, and then slowly we started um, getting into more internal uh, problematic uh, issues of uh, of the U.S. Personally, I'm I'm connected to mass incarceration. I teach in Bard College, and uh, I'm uh, BPI, which is uh, Bard Prison Initiative. So every Monday, I'm entering a huge uh, prison and you really need to be a colorblind in order not to see what I see there. Hmm. Uh, it's so clear. I, I Sometimes they don't let you even bring a sharpener to inside but I, I just wish, I just, just want to have this photograph that I see in the morning. There's, there are 800 males and 98% are black and brown. I mean, it's you can't miss it. It's just so obvious. So that's that's the way I'm getting connected. I mean, that's probably, I mean, just justice in uh, prison and dismantling uh, the mass incarceration would be high up on the list of the reparations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the piece that Alison uh, is actually, I think, uh, got most connected when we, we started talking about it. Um, so yeah, that's, I would say that it's 17 years of, of work around activism and uh, uh, mass incarceration. We, we started in 2014, the first concerts, and then Black Lives Matter way before it became mm-hmm. in or whatever. Right, right. And uh, by the way, right after we had the first Black Lives Matter concert, uh, our account got locked and I couldn't pay anyone and our not-for-profit was uh, that was exactly 2016 the summer of 2016 oh my goodness yeah Yeah. it's little things like that 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 people don't talk about you know the punishments for even affirming that that black lives matter and you know you you talk about going in in, in, into those um, jails you know those prisons a point that whenever the conversation comes up that I that I feel like I have to make and I know um, Allison you can speak to this as well for black and brown people to make up you know uh, such you know relatively such a small part of the national population for such a high percentage of those people to be incarcerated you know as Edith was saying it's it's hard to ignore a a fact like that yeah Yeah. I mean it's it's blatantly obvious and you can't and you also can't ignore the 13th amendment either you know and the connection there because I mean I mean if you really look at it it's a pretty obvious continuation of slavery really you know it is completely legal and constitutional to, to have these inmates, you know, work for free, you know, um, because they're technically, uh, you know, um, property of the state, right? So, I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't take a genius to, to, to connect the dots and to, and to see that this is just another way that they, you know, the, our, our system has, has, has figured out how to kind of like restructure things over time, but really not change much of anything actually. Right. So that's, 
you know, and that's the were... sad shame about that. But that that to me, I think, is 100 percent the truth. So Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and your, you know, uh, response uh, to that truth, at least in mm-hmm. part, uh, is is music. Well, why don't you tell us mm-hmm. a little bit um, about some of the music on this Reparations Now concert? Um, well, I, I wrote a piece um, for uh, Puro Ensemble, a sextet, and it is it is really all about that that pattern I was talking about. It's called the pattern, actually. Um, this idea of you know something tragic, horrendous that happens, and then you get the sense that okay, they realize this was wrong, and we're going to stop doing that. But like the minute you start really kind of you know, getting, getting a taste of freedom and like independence, something comes to like get in that in your way. And there's always kind of like a sense that you have to like watch your back, you know, like there's something, um, and this something in this case is white supremacy mm-hmm. that's going to creep up from behind, you know, and get in your way. Um, you know, you think about, I, I kind of wanted to tell tell that story and it's it's so funny because in writing a piece i was like well this could be about the civil war this could be about redlining this could be about segregation this could be about uh police brutality stop and frisk Um, you know this could be yeah about stopping this could be about education you know in the united states i mean there's so many so many different things where that is the pattern you know um so uh so so yeah that's you know i i kind of am underscoring that story more or less and you know it starts off very like chaotic kind of like a like a battle scene of sorts you know and then kind of dies down to a moment of like rebuilding you know but still on edge you know Mm -hmm. feeling a a little sense of paranoia or you know being on guard and then and then feeling like okay well maybe we got this together maybe things are good and like we have a a groove of sorts and you know we're 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 going somewhere you know um like the civil rights movement you know and you feel like okay we're coming together we shall overcome and then you know that had a tragic ending right you know um and ended with you know mlk being assassinated um so in the piece it's like you know we have that moment where you feel like okay we're, we're we're making progress and then like you know, something happens where, gosh, are we making progress? You know, um, so so yeah, that's that kind of is a a little bit of a of a talk through of of the piece. Yeah, yeah. You know, Edith, I've seen, I've, I've visited your website, and I've seen you play so many, you know, types of music so beautifully with so many different styles and approaches. I wonder um, what is your approach to music like this? I mean, can you approach a, a piece of music that deals with something as horrible um, as racism and as hopeful as reparations the same that same way that you approach a Chopin etude or or, or something along those lines? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I think that the, I mean, the love for classical music would be among us forever because that's where we come from and that's what we were raised and that's what we were attracted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, within the classical music, there were many horrific pieces that were written about about catastrophes and atrocities, and uh, so um, I hope that we will be able to express that as well. Um, and, um, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, you know, and it, I'll, I'll, I'll humbly brag here a little bit. I asked this question uh, to uh, Midori the other night in, in, a, in a conversation uh, in relation to Grieg's violin sonata, you know, Norwegian tragedy, but the, the beauty therein. Edith, I, I'll ask you the same question I asked her. You know, um, in light, again, of what this music is about, is there beauty in, in tragedy? Ooh, that's a tricky one. Uh, probably there's beauty because music, there is an innate beauty f forever, uh, yet it can be tragic uh, in the same way that we can have beautiful words describing a horrific thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe it would be more expressive because it's, it's abstract and without words. Uh, but the beauty is still there because of the art form, I assume. Right, right. Same question to you, Alison. Can you beautifully write tragedy? Or did you beautifully write tragedy, I, I guess I'll um, ask? Sure. I, I think so. Because um, I think, uh, well, in this piece in particular that I wrote, I did want to try to incorporate moments of, of strength you know, moments of, of hope because, you know, we, we need that to survive, mm -hmm. you know? So I think about, you know, if, if, if just thinking about, um, black Americans in, in, in general and our history here, I mean, it's tragic, right? But we are a beautiful people, you know, I, you know, I, I love black culture. It brings me joy. It brings me, um, excitement you know there's like a light to it and that's something that that nobody can can take away from us and you you know it, it's something that has survived like throughout all of these all of these things and is part of the story you know is part of um you know the tragedies that have happened and a lot of this beauty is, is a direct result of it a lot of our music is you know a direct result of that you know um and it's beautiful you know it's it's and it's um and it's added enormously to American culture, yeah. if if not entirely, <laughs> you know. Right. So more certainly more than we acknowledge regularly. <laughs> Appropriate, right? right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so yes, I think I think there can be. It's not you know, it's not all necessarily um, ugly per se, and it, you know it also depends on what your definition of, of beauty is. You know, right. beauty is not always uh, pretty. You know, beauty is 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 feelings it's expression it's you know the human experience it's life it's you know all of those things so i definitely um do believe that you can you can have elements of that within a tragic story or a tragic um piece of music yeah you know and, and the more i think about uh, this upcoming performance the more i think about you know one of those ugly truths that, that i've always dealt with you know it seems like it's always been the smaller organizations that lead the way when it comes to um really performing these conversations not just having them in your you know boardrooms or in your dei trainings but actually bringing these conversations to the stage musically you know uh not only these days are the big large institutions still not doing this there yeah. you know many of them are not even in business right now they're just gone um edith um with that in mind um do we need them should we hope for their return after covid hmm. well you're talking about the institutionalized uh western 
classical music. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we need them, I mean, they present power, they present uh, most of the things that I'm not sure that I care that much about, yet they preserve classical music that I do care about uh, in some way. Um, maybe they should return in a different form and in a different way. Yeah. My dream would be if they would first would be a better reflection of our culture and a better presentation of our culture. Uh, definitely locally more and not just importing Central European elitist type of, of concerts that I see a lot in the city. Um, uh, and to dig in into the real culture that is happening that I often do not see presenting presented in, in important places. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. No, that's great. You know, and Allison, we haven't really talked about uh, flutronics, but, you know, Mm -hmm. with the innovation in that music and quite frankly, just the the entertaining nature of it, you know, it doesn't seem like you've needed the the big institutions either when when it comes to the (laughs) to the orchestras. I mean, same same question for you. Should should we care? Should 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 the person on the street care that um, insert orchestra here may not come back, may not survive COVID? Um, I think. Hmm, this is really interesting. I I think we should care. I don't necessarily believe that these orchestras are irrelevant um, and that they're not contributing something. I think, you know, uh, I think the New York Philharmonic has an important role in the culture of, of New York City. What I would like to see them do is to think about their accessibility and to think about who's in the room. Um, and to think about their their programming. Um, the thing I wonder about with these larger institutions that you speak of, since they do seem to be a little bit slower, you know, they and, and because they're larger, um, I wonder if their position is that they have more to lose if they take these kinds of quote unquote risks. Sure. I don't think they're risks. I don't see what's risky about that. But I think the idea is that it is risky because there's this there's this idea that exists that somehow diversifying your institution means watering down the quality or something like that. I've heard that a lot. Yeah. I've heard that a lot from peers, you know, I've heard it in my entire life. Um, colleagues, you know. Um, so I, I do believe that is kind of, uh, unfortunately, a, a mindset that exists and that needs to be completely eradicated a, it's completely bogus. You know, there's enormous talent out there. Yeah. We have, I mean, there, <laughs> come on, you know, there's, it's just, you have to, you have to open the door, you know, you have to allow this talent to, to, to shine and give them, give them space to occupy. So I would like to see more efforts in, in that direction. Um, whether or not it's going to happen, I think we'll see, you know, these institutions, they got a lot of like, um, money donors, a lot of conservative donors, um, and that is very much on their mind when they think about these things. Their existing, their subscribers, who who subscribes to the Metropolitan Opera? Right, right. You yeah, know the what people I mean? with the fur coats and the pearls and let's think you know. about that. Yeah, there's like a whole kind of 
connotation that comes along like with the when you when you think about the Met it's like high society and like all these things like that and like yes it's music and the music is wonderful but it you know it's part of this whole other thing too um, and I wouldn't say that that audience is out there on the streets protesting with Black Lives Matter probably right not huh <laughs> right so you know there therein I think lies a big conflict when it comes to you know this this topic and this idea of uh, you know creating more opportunity and, and diversifying um, you know what already exists and also I think in general these institutions are, are slow to change in general you know it used to be you know why won't they ever play new music you know and then they slowly started doing that you know so I think it's gonna take some time I mean I definitely don't think it's gonna be overnight um, but you know we'll see we'll see what happens yeah we'll we'll, we'll see if uh, you know that time that they need will uh, not be too much time to get them out of here permanently because you know Groups like Ensemble Pie are, you know, agile enough to to right. to, to uh, survive it all. Um, Edith, how can um, folks uh, learn more about this um, upcoming performance and uh, and and tune in and even donate to the project? Uh, well, I guess we put everything we could in the social media. So the only thing I would say is to go to uh, Facebook of Ensemble Pie. Uh, to website of Ensemble Pi, and then also because we are artists in residence in the center of the West Park, which was kind enough to host us. So it's centerwestpark.org, and it's on Thursday, October 29th at 7 p.m. And after that, there will be Q&A with all beautiful, talented four uh, composers that we have commissioned. And how can people um, learn more uh, about you personally and hear some of these incredible recordings, these videos that I alluded to earlier? Uh, that's on our website for free whenever they want, www.ensemblepie.org. Wow, great. Thank you. Um, Allison, um, I'll, before I ask you uh, my final question uh, for you, I'll, I'll uh, ask you to do the same. Where can folks uh, learn more about you and where can they uh, learn more about Flutronics? Again, we haven't really talked about that today, but you know, an, an, an another incredible group that I want to make sure that people know about. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Flutronics is um, a group that I founded with my creative partner of many, many years, Natalie Joachin, who is also a flutist and composer and also vocalist. And um, we are, I think, in our, our 12th year now. We've been together for quite wow. some time. But we've been, we've been writing for our flutes and bringing in electronics, bringing in a drummer, using our voices for all this time now. And um, at, as of late, uh, recently, we've been working on much larger scale projects, um, larger commissioning projects that involve a lot of community engagement, um, a lot of um, kind of music, musical activism as well. And um, all of that information can be found at flutronics.com. Um, we're on all of the social medias, Twitter, Instagram, all those guys, Facebook. And then uh, myself, um, I also have a website. It's allisonloggins.com. And I, too, am um, all over the interweb and, uh, you know, the typical guys and SoundCloud and, and all of that. So Yeah, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, and in closing here, I wanted to ask you, Allison, what are you going to do with your reparations check if they ever come? <laughs> with my reparations check, that'll be the day, right? Um, <laughs> what would I do with it? Honestly, I would just probably invest it, you know, and set up maybe a trust for my kids, 
something like that, you know, so we can kind of really get the ball rolling on that generational wealth that we've never really had a chance to to build on like the rest of our uh, American <laughs> brothers and sisters. Um, so yeah, figure I would just, you know, probably call a financial advisor right away and, <laughs> and figure out how to set them up for a long time. And my grandkids do. So. Surely you'd pick up a, I don't know, a piccolo or something here or there. Uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Edith, Allison, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. track there featuring Allison and Natalie of Flutronics. Uh, Scott, I'll I'll give you the opportunity to uh, get a closer uh, look and listen uh, at Flutronics here in a bit. But, you know, when you think about uh, ensembles as small as uh, two flutes and electronics or two flutes and percussion, knowing what you know now about Ableton and other electronic things, you know, I'm sure you can imagine that the sky is the limit for just that boundless possibilities so again why in the world am i going to pay 251 dollars to hear 80 people play a song that i've already heard before not only are there boundless opportunities but they are far more mobile than a big ensemble like new york right absolutely they could go in the smallest little non-traditional space and give a show. Yeah, so definitely check out Flutronics. Um, huge shout out and thank you to Edith and Allison for joining me in that conversation. All of the information about Ensemble Pie's upcoming uh, Reparations Now performance you'll, you can find in the description um, of this opus and over at Triloquy.org. All right, let's go ahead and get into uh, this Triloquy. I'm going to do something unusual for a classical radio station. I want to tell you about a listener letter we received yesterday. In the letter, a listener states that they and their family have been longtime supporters of WUOL. They've also noticed more music by black composers on WUOL and take issue with that. And finally, state that they will no longer support WUOL because of the increase in black composers heard on this station. This letter was racist, and I hope this person is listening. Because let me be perfectly clear, we do not tolerate racism from our members. If you share the views of this letter writer who is cowardly anonymous and sympathize with their views, please stop giving Louisville Public Media and WUOL your money. Daniel Gillum there giving it up down at WUOL. Uh, I think it's I think we can just dedicate today's triloquy to that. So as you just heard, um, Daniel Gillum, an announcer um, and a, a person in management down at the classical station in Louisville, WUOL, basi- basically told his racist listeners to go fuck off. We don't need your money and keep it moving. Mm. Now, Scott. I sent the article. It was also written out, you know, and I sent the article to you. Mm-hmm. And your reaction to me was one word, ballsy. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell me, why did, what, what did you mean by that? I think that public broadcasting has this um, stereotype of being non-confrontational. And m- every manager that I have ever had my whole life in radio 
has always told me never to engage people that want to fight with you or tear you down. You're giving them red meat, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you want to take the high road at all points. Right. I would never in my life ever anticipate a host, let alone a program director, right. pop off like that. I mean, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But, but the reason why I think a lot of uh, people are going to be surprised by this is because you are running the risk of losing, you know, there's collateral damage that can happen, right? So the idea being you take the high road because you never know who's going to write you a check, you know, who's going to become a member. And what a stance to draw a line in the sand like that. Uh, I, I never would have anticipated seeing it in in this day and age, no. And I and I love to see it. Would this be something now? Now that this has been done, you know, and it's it's broken the story. It's it's been on the internet, all over the public radio corners of you know Facebook and and, and social media and and whatever. Do you think a precedent has been set now? Do you think this action changes something fundamentally about public media and classical I, I radio? I sure hope so. I sure hope so. I mean. And this is where we get into the trill part because, you know, you can hope so, but I wonder who, you or who of your colleagues would do something like that. I would say none. None that I know of. And so let, let me pull out an adage from my grandmother. You can hope in one hand and shit in the other <laughs> and see which one fills up first. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, uh, the only reason why I say it, I hope that it sets a precedent is because if this doesn't, what will? Because what what will have to because happen? Because you know good and damn well, if somebody like me got on the radio and said that, oh, it would have been a problem. It would have been. Oh, a there would have been people at the it? door of the fire axe. Oh yes, <laughs> are you kidding? Listeners and 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 managers alike, you know. But I, I like that uh, Daniel did that, and I, I suppose my message is more people need to have that level of fearlessness. Tell the racists to fuck off. He now, didn't say that word. I'm, I'm not on Facebook anymore, thank goodness, and it's been so great. So give me an idea uh, of some of the, the things that are being tossed around comment-wise. It's so great, but you're curious to know what's going on. Mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, right. Well, uh-huh. hey, I'm still on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, all that I've seen is positive. I've seen a lot of way to go. I'm so proud of you from people in the field that I know good and well would never, you know, and I could never as a, as a black man. We talked about this yesterday, uh, yesterday, last week with Bill Burr, you know, mm-hmm. the way he went off. Mm-hmm. If, you know, insert black comedian here went up there and, and said what, you know, he said about white women, it'd be a problem, wouldn't it? It you would. Know? So, um, I think more of us, you know, uh, all, with all of my critiques said and aside, I think more of us need to have that level of fearlessness just to tell the racists to get out of here. I, I think I also said last week you're either with us or against us, right? So if you won't be against the racists, if you won't, we will get we will get on social media and drag Donald Trump for not saying for for not openly uh, uh, disavowing d- d- white disavowing supremacy. white supremacists, you know. But we won't do that in our own way. 
What do you think? It would, so do you know when in his broadcast he did this? Was it at the beginning or the end? Well, after he said what he said, he said, we're going to spend the rest of this show listening to black music. Here's the uh, the uh, Negro Folk Symphony by, uh, you know, William Levi Dawson. I wonder what. So I, so I bet you it was close to the beginning. So when he went back to his office and closed the door and, and fired up his email and, and his voicemail, what was waiting there? I want to know what that what that walk was like to walk into that office and and sit down in front of those messages. Oh, you know, no 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 different than when any black person gets on the air and affirms blackness. I'm sure those emails look very similar to the ones that I used to get with people that had a problem. You know, I put Daniel Gillum on the spot on Twitter. I, I read I retweeted the uh, the thing. Uh, the the statement, uh, and I think the video as well, like, you know, way to go, shout out. I like this energy. We need more of this. I went over to the Twitter and saw that their pinned tweet was that they are looking for a music director. So I also <laughs> retweeted that, and I was like, oh, well, I look forward to hearing about the black person that you hire for that job. Um, we I, I, I uh, sent my resume, so I guess we'll see. 